Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, it's on page 871, I believe, if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. Otherwise, Luke chapter 12, I want to begin reading at verse 13 and read down through verse 21. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will those be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word We're so grateful that we could have your word, that we could spend these next moments in our worship together considering this segment of your word. Help us, Father. Show us wonderful things about yourself. Change us by the very presence of your spirit in our midst. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, we're making our way through various and sundry parables that Jesus told. Remember, parables deal in comparisons. It's a story like the one we've just read here, or in some cases, it's just a thing or an object from life or about life, and and yet the story or the thing or the object is, is given to us to make a comparison in reference to something of a spiritual truth or reality. This parable is, it serves as the same function. Before the parable, and we didn't read this part, we'll, we'll catch a glimpse of it in a, in a little bit. And after the parable, we didn't, we didn't read after the parable, but we'll catch glimpses of it in a little bit. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples and those who were around him uh, that they could trust 
their lives to their Father in heaven. And as he's given this talk, he's interrupted. Someone approaches Jesus with a request. Kind of feels from left field, but nevertheless. A request that Jesus arbitrate an inheritance matter between himself and his brother. Jesus' response back to him feels a little abrupt. Who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And then Jesus gives the first of, I think, our two key statements in our reading this morning. The, The first is in verse 15. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I don't think we could reason this out in every particular uh, inheritance dispute. And yet, uh, Jesus is able to sort through things by the presence of the Spirit in ways that you and I can't. Not everybody who is concerned about a matter of inheritance is greedy or covetousness. This covetous. I'm going to have trouble with that word, but... So I'm going to say greed a lot more probably because I'm just going to use those two as synonyms. Greed is one syllable I can usually get by through that easier. So, but, but Jesus does suggest, at least in this particular case, that, that the battle between the two brothers over the inheritance is really a battle of greed and covetousness. Now, I'm going to throw out something that you already probably know. We live in a world filled with greed and covetousness. And while that's a true statement, I would suggest to you that it's not a careful enough statement. It's true, but it's not complete. It, it, it doesn't suffice to just simply say, oh, the world out there is filled with greed and covetousness. Well, why is the world out there filled with greed and covetousness? Well, greed is not merely a thing out there around us in the world Now, this is going to offend some fine church-going folk, but greed is operational fully within us. The world is filled with greed and covetousness because that thing operates in each of our hearts and souls. You take all of us out of the equation and the world would no longer be filled with greed and covetousness. Because it's not a thing out there. It's a reality in here. Even Christians, even Christians who have been given new hearts by the kind, gracious Spirit of God, secured by the cross of Jesus, we've been given new hearts. Even Christians who, with those new hearts, 
are, are, which are oriented toward the Lord, um, we have new, fresh desires. And yet still, even Christians with new hearts and new desires, you and I still have vestiges, remaining remnants of greed and covetousness um, lurking around in us, leftovers from our former self. Well, what is this thing? What is this greed or covetousness? Well, I'm just going to take a simple stab at it. Greed or covetousness is an unquenchable thirst for more. It's a desire, but it's a disordered, distorted desire in which we're convinced that we don't have enough. And so there's an emptiness in the pit of our stomach that creates a yearning. And that yearning rooted in that emptiness is this thing we call greed or covetousness. It's a, it's a sign, greed or covetousness is a sign of a life turned in on itself, turned inward. And that inward orientation colors all of our choices and all of our decisions. This guy that the parable speaks of is a poster child of greed and covetousness. But lest we, lest we um, uh, gang up on him and shake our heads at him, and uh, we ought to consider the possibility that the same sort of operational, distorted, disordered desires that drove his life are... Well, we share some things in common with him, perhaps. One of the, two of the problems with greed or covetousness is that it renders us unable to enjoy what we do have. There's an interesting uh, passage in Ecclesiastes 6.2 that says something so in, uh, insightful. It talks about how God would give wealth to a person, but then it, 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 it tags onto that and makes mention that, and, and, and God who gives wealth per, to a person must also give that person the ability to enjoy their wealth. That too is a gift from God. You, you can have stuff. You can have lots of stuff. You can have more stuff than I have. And, and, and yet you feel empty. You still have a pit in your stomach because, because what you have, you're incapable. We are incapable of saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this stuff. And thank you for even the gift that I could rightly look at this stuff and find enjoyment in that. But Father, I would never find more enjoyment in that than I would in you. But see, that's only birthed out of a relationship with the Lord. The second thing, and I see, certainly see both of these played out with this rich fool. He, he cannot yet quite enjoy his stuff. Even on his last day, he's thinking, 
relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then he dies. A second thing that I think we'll see when we look more closely at this is that um, he will not, he will not employ what he has for the good of others. Now, as I look more closely, just briefly at this parable, uh, I'm just going to look at this parable around a, a, a basic outline of um, this man's view of himself, and then more importantly, God's view of this man. That's there in your bulletin if you want to follow along and use that to jot down some notes if that's helpful to you. This man thinks a lot of himself and talks a lot to himself, and even worse than that, listens to himself a lot. In other words, this, this, this man uh, is totally oriented around himself. Uh, he is the orbit around which he orbits. That's a term. Um, for instance, looking at the parable again, the land of a rich man, verse 17, the land of a rich man produced um, plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I... Notice that six times here, I is used. Coupled with that, notice the frequent use of the modifier, my. So let's read that again. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, all that guy's got is himself. Do you see the source of discontentment? If all you have is you, I know this doesn't smack, well, this doesn't land well in the face of uh, our uh, psychological therapeutic culture, but if all you have is you, it's no wonder that you lack joy and you lack peace and you lack strength. It's no wonder that your heart is filled with discontent. It's no wonder that you are overrun with greed and covetousness. You know that what you have ain't enough. You know that what you are isn't enough. And that's true. Now, that's not the end of the story. It doesn't have to just be you. You don't have to just be obsessed with my stuff and my stuff and my barns and my grain and my goods and my soul and my crops. You don't have to just talk and listen to yourself. I will do this and I will do that and, and I will say to myself and, and I will say to my soul. It's a, it's a very small world. 
It's a very sad world. And I'm, I'm not trying to heap up on any of us, but it's a very pitiful and pathetic world. This man's whole identity, and therefore this man's whole, therefore whole entire life orientation orbits around himself and his stuff. That's a small universe. He had lots of possessions. His barns wouldn't hold his grain and his goods. I don't know if this got much to do with it or not, but have you noticed, not only is there like a car wash being built on every street corner, but moreover, where there's not a car wash across the street from that, there's a, a storage uh, place. We ain't got big enough barns. How could a culture who needs bigger barns, whose garages and basements and bedrooms and living rooms and, and attics ain't enough to store the stuff that we actually have to go down the road to the corner spot across from the car wash and, and rent a storage facility. And a culture that's got that much stuff, how could a culture with that stuff be unhappy and feel a lack and a void in their hearts? Because, as it turns out, this guy had lots of possessions. But honestly, his possessions actually had him. Possessions can, can one time, on one hand be a, a wonderful gift from God, but possessions are a tyrannical replacement for God. He lived for his things, and he sought to derive his identity from those things. And lest he be an outlier, be seen as an outlier, you and I, in the culture that we're living in, are tempted to measure ourselves by our portfolio, our stuff, our possessions, to the point that we trust that our stuff, not the God who would kindly grant us the stuff, but, but our stuff in place of that God, that our stuff would give us what our hearts truly desire. There's narrow one of us this that's here this morning who's not on a quest for satisfaction. That you wanna feel satisfaction is not the problem. That you and I look in all the wrong places for the satisfaction of our souls is in fact 
fundamentally what sin consists of. Sin thinks, I don't need God to fill my heart and satisfy my soul. I do it myself. And yet I need some of that, and I need some of that, and I need some more of those, and I need, need that. And, and then, well, then I, I need some more of that, and I need some more of those, and I need some more of that. It's a never-ending quest for satisfaction because satisfaction does not come from the accumulation of our possessions. And I think that's what he's trying to tell us here, back to verse 16, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You got all the stuff in the world? That's great. Can I be your friend? No, just kidding. Uh, you, you got all the stuff in the world? Uh, how do you account for that pit of emptiness still in your soul? His life orbited around his stuff, and yet, and yet the stuff was not the problem. Things out there are not the problem. The problem still lurks in the human heart. The problem is not the things. The problem is our heart's inordinate, distorted, disordered desire to elevate the things that God provides to a status of being able to replace the God who provides those things. Now, just briefly, what was this that we, we see bit, a bit of what this man's view of himself was? And now, in one word, with a little bit of commentary at the end of it, but in one word, we capture God's view of this man. Fool! The problem wasn't that this guy merely had stuff, and, and there's nothing in this text that, su- that suggests that any of the stuff that he got was uh, by illegal gain. But all of his stuff, and I would suggest probably even in how he got his stuff to begin with, and then certainly what he would do with his stuff once he got it, all of it reflects a lack of wisdom. This rich guy is a fool. I know what you're thinking. I'd rather be a rich fool than a poor fool. Well, that misses the point, doesn't it? We would just rather not be a fool, wouldn't we? You see, wisdom is needed. Oh, and guess what? This is open book. Wisdom is needed in our acquisition of stuff, of wealth. The wisdom of Christ given to us in Holy Scripture, gives to us the principles of work and investment. We could turn to God's word and we could learn the things we need to know to have the wisdom to know 
How do I acquire wealth? How do I acquire possessions? It's not the acquirement of wealth and the acquirement of possessions that's the problem. It is when we stumble into acquiring those and we don't have the wisdom to know how to go about doing that. Wisdom is needed not only for the acquisition of one's wealth, and this particularly is the case in this guy's life. It is, it, wisdom is needed to, to, uh, to, 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 in the use of our wealth, our possessions, our we see it, how we regard it, what we do with it. Principles of thrift and generosity are principles of wisdom that Christ teaches his people, that the scriptures give us details on how to grasp and understand. I got this stuff, it's from God. What am I supposed to do with it? I need help to know what to do with my stuff. And when we don't realize we need help, to know what to do in using our stuff. We are fools. You see, the Lord is needed in my life and in your life. The Lord is needed in our lives if we are to be people who have wisdom. Wisdom as it applies to lots of areas of life, but wisdom in particular as it pertains to the acquisition and the deployment of our stuff. This man, based upon his conversations with himself, based upon the, the uh, orbit of himself, around himself, and his stuff. This man lacks any awareness of the Lord in his life. That's sad. This chapter, Luke 12, uh, in other words, this, this parable that we've just read is is uh, wedged in between this incredible chapter that, among other things, gives us a broader perspective on life uh, by inserting God himself in the center of each of our lives. That, and a, a life with the broader perspective that God is in the center of our lives. He at least is to be acknowledged at the center of our lives is so much better than a heart overrun with greed and covetousness. What's better than a heart filled with greed and covetousness, a heart filled with the awareness that we can live a life with a heavenly father. The very eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ can be our father. Let me read a couple of verses from the broader chapter here. In Luke 6, I mean, Luke 12, 6, for instance. You can lay your eyes up there if you want to, but I'll read it for you. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
In other words, they ain't worth much. Um, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Isn't that amazing? Some worthless sparrows God intimately knows and cares for. Then he adds in verse 6, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. I suppose that's not saying much, but it's meant to say much in this context. When God looks at his children, he doesn't see, ah, just a worthless sparrow. He sees that, that's my kid, I love my kid. I love my kid on the basis of how I love my son, Jesus. And if I know how to take care of sparrows, then I know how to count the hairs on your head. I know, I know you intimately. I know you well, and I will care well for you. Or going past the parable, a couple of verses in particular, Luke 12, 24 Consider the ravens, oh, we're just, uh, not sparrows this time, but ravens, in my opinion, just as worthless. But anyway, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? If God knows how to take care of ravens, just like he knows how to take care of sparrows. Or in verse 27, consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. How much more will he clothe you? Or verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. What things? The fatherly care the God who cares for his children even more than sparrows and ravens and lilies. For the nations of the world would seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. And he gives the solution. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, a life that is rich is a life that is Rich toward God. Isn't that how he ended verse 21? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The implication is we are to be classified as rich toward God. How are we rich toward God? We live with an acute, ongoing, conscious awareness that we belong to God and he is now our father and we can come to him with all things. In fact, if we want the wisdom to know what to do with the acquisition of our things and the, and the deployment of our things, then we would seek our father. Father, you know my need. Father, you, I, I look to you for the wisdom from your word to show me how you would want me to pursue the acquisition of things. Father, now that you've given me these things, Father, I'm so grateful you have taken good care of me. Father, may I honor you in how I view these things and how I hold on to these things and how I use these things. You see, a life that is rich toward God is a life that is flush with wisdom. A life that is flesh with wisdom is a life that knows how to have a proper perspective with our stuff. And then one more thing. 
He mentions here at the end of verse 21 that we are, um, uh, we are to do the opposite of what is called here. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is, is not rich toward God. We're to be rich toward God, unlike the fool, and we're to, to not lay up treasure for ourselves, but that's what a fool does. But what, well, then what are we to do with our treasure? As we seek God, we grow in wisdom, but we grow not only in wisdom, but we, we grow also in godliness. First Timothy chapter six tells us, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then a couple of verses later in First Timothy chapter six, verse 17, he says, as for the rich, set your hope on God who richly supplies. And then he says this to the rich, do good, be rich in good works. You're rich, so be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. And then he adds this, thus storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the future. So how do you do the opposite of not laying up treasures for yourself? How do you, how do you practice laying up treasures in heaven? You have a view of your stuff. You have a view of your wealth. You have a view of your possessions that seeks to do good with that stuff, that seeks to be generous with that stuff, that seeks to want to use your stuff to honor God for the good of others. For godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. You see, when, when our stuff controls us, then greed and covetousness override our hearts. And yet when the things of God control us, a perspective and a relationship with the Lord controls us then our hearts are not overrun with covetousness and greed. Our hearts are settled and satisfied and content. Why? Why? Because he who was rich, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, became poor for our sake, relinquished everything to rescue us so that we might receive the riches of God, that all the spiritual blessings that God has for his children could reside around and within and upon the one who turns and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ. He alone can provide a salve for our broken hearts. He alone can soothe our disquieted hearts. He alone can bring contentment and joy and peace to our hearts. Contentment and joy and peace that even gives us a whole new take on our stuff that we would actually want to use it for God and his glory. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all that your word says to us and teaches us. We thank you that we could spend these moments together considering this parable 
And Father, as we leave out of here, may we be mindful of the fatherly care that you surround each of your children with. And so, Father, we would pray that each of us here this morning would be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone could take away the barrier that our sin has caused, that he alone could take away the condemnation that our sin has brought, that he alone could remove the curse that our sin has placed upon us. And may we turn to Christ, trusting only in him. And Father, make the very wisdom of Christ help us to look at ourselves and our stuff in a way that's pleasing to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.